Hi, everybody, and welcome to this podcast. And today I'm joined by Tanya Lepaho and Pavel Ritala to learn from their interesting and really insightful study into a company known as Finboat. Now, this is a pseudonym, um, but this is a traditional family business in Finland. And it's a really interesting case because it's one that has endured, survived and prospered through three major crises. This includes the economic recession of the 1990s, the 2008 to 2009 financial crisis, and of course the 2020 to 21 coronavirus pandemic. So what is even more interesting is how Finboats seem to undertake only modest, if any, innovation during stable times but has this uncanny ability to innovate in crises. And this makes it really fascinating when you think about the times that we now live in. And so in this highly uncertain and combustible world that we live in, hopefully you'll find some interest and some interesting insights and lessons from today's podcast and case. So I'm joined by, first of all, Tanya Lepaho. And Tanya is a professor of growth entrepreneurship at LUT University in Finland and a research fellow of the Academy of Finland. And Tanya is also among the world's foremost experts on the internationalization of small to medium-sized family enterprises and recently co-edited the first ever Palgrave Handbook of Family Firm Internationalization, which I had the honor of writing a foreword for. And also I'm joined by Pavo Ritala, who is Professor of Strategy at LUT University in Finland. And Pavo is a leading expert in the field of innovation. And his recent work delves into ecosystems, business model and sustainable value creation. So thank you both for joining me. I'm really grateful uh, to you. So Tanya, maybe I can begin with you. It's a really interesting to hear of a family business that is able to switch innovation gears so starkly. So what can you tell us about the circumstances surrounding Finboat? Thank you for this invitation, Matt. Uh, it's an honor to be here today. Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting case. It's a, I would say it's a very typical traditional family firm, which has a very strong father character who has already passed away. But I would say that his innovations were the, were the, were the ones that really have uh, made this uh, company a success story because he was the first one in Finland to, to come uh, with fiberglass boats and he was, he was a forerunner with this. And he, was, he came up with innovations constantly through the first years of the company and also he did, did quite much uh, some uh, exports but, but not like so regularly. It was a bit irregular, but anyway, he tested that these boats were of interest in international markets. Uh, so he was, he was doing things um, like ahead of others, I would say, in Finland. Uh, well, then the company was later on passed on to three brothers who are still involved with the business, but who should be passing on the company to the next generation or some other owners soon. And I would say that their role in the company have, have been more like, uh, uh, like they have been reacting to crises, which is very good that they have survived all of them, but they have also like decreased the innovation pace if we think about the innovations during more stable times, which is the core of, of this study that we are talking about. Mm -hmm. So, and if I think about this family firm and the surroundings where this three uh, sons grew in, they, they, uh, they started working for the company as 
as early as they could. So they were doing a lot of different tasks uh, in the summertime and also during school days. And what they heard about from their father, it's typical of family firms that they, they really uh, are raised with the values of the company early on. Uh, so what their father was constantly saying to them is that rather be beautiful and small than big and ugly and, <laughs> and have the customer at the core. So they wanted to be from the first moment onwards really good with customers and serve them well. Yeah. And what this case also shows is a lot of persistence. So of course, the early times in Finland where you didn't have so many customers for this kind of more expensive, uh, fancy boats at that time. So he, he was really doing things really, really well that they, they made, it, made their way uh, to the famous. And it's one of the most wanted boats in Finland among people who really know about boats and their quality. But yeah, what were the circumstances? They were doing quite, in, quite steadily as far as the 1990s uh, recession came up. And before that, they had had already the succession to the three, three sons. And the, the father was still alive, but still he was not involved with the business anymore. So he was this kind of father who really led their, the sons to take over the business and he was not managing it beside uh, after, after the generational change took mm -hmm. place. And the innovation in the 1990s was quite interesting because they were really, uh, because fin Finns were losing all their capabilities of buying anything extra or even paying their, uh, paying their basic uh, costs. Then they started doing something new. So they made a business model innovation and uh, they, they moved to a new business line. And this was totally the idea of the twin sons uh, of the company. Who, who really like came onto the mood that now we really need to do something. Uh, we need to uh, cherish what our father has created and find a way out of this, this uh, uh, situation where, where all the demand was going down. Yeah, I think those are some really interesting issues because there's this, you know, somewhat of a dichotomy between the father as a, a lead entrepreneur initially and lead innovator and that, as you were saying at the beginning of the business, lots of innovations. And then I s imagine the three brothers then in taking over the, the business from the father, probably wanted to act more as custodians. And so, as you say, put an emphasis on persistence, on uh, re reputation and quality. And I guess with you know, that mantra of staying small and beautiful rather than you know, big and ugly or more likely just becoming more bureaucratic or, you know, harder to manage in that sense. So it's a classic dilemma of growth, isn't it, in that respect? So, but it also then just seems, as you were just saying just now, that a crisis seemed to sort of catalyze some kind of drive in the sons to want to, you know, not just sustain the business, but then restore it to, to what it had been, um, it's, it's glory days. So I think that's, that's an interesting insight into the trigger points for innovation. It, indeed it is. And, and like we can see that the second crisis that they faced, there they actually uh, gave away some of the big thing that the father had created just before he, he left the business. So he, 
he had studied the production of bigger, larger boats because they wanted to be also on that sector. But, and the sons want, wanted to carry on with that. But then during the financial crisis, the sons uh, recognized that they can't do it anymore. It's not uh, bringing enough income. And I think that this might be also partly related to, to the sons not maybe innovating as well as the father, because now they had been producing this, these bigger boats for about 20 years, and maybe they didn't do enough innovations in relation to different aspects. Yep. But anyway, they saved the company by, by like just ending the production of larger boats and, and then also ending those production facilities and focusing on smaller boats and also like introducing some kind of retro thinking that they have uh, designs because the, they were, the designs they are selling even nowadays, they are created by their father. So they are retro designs from the 1960s mm. and 70s. Uh, so they, they kind of were able to start calling it retro design. So that was the second uh, very big crisis for them. Uh, they had just like come up with a new boat model that was the first real one that they had introduced themselves and it, like innovated themselves. But then they have never sold a single uh, model because of this financial crisis and because of the fear that now we would really lose the company if we don't make some rationalization yeah no that's excellent i think that's again really interesting that final situation there where it's clear to me that the company had been in a very steady state and then over relied on historical innovations that had worked so you know the bigger sized boats and then it's really interesting to see drawing inspiration from the past by going into smaller boats and retro designs and you know elevating not the nostalgia, but I think this like, like the heritage assets of the family business to to enable a path to innovation. So I think that's really in interesting summary of the case, and maybe that allows me to segue to my next question here with uh, Pavo. So, Pavo, in what ways did Finboat innovate in the various crises? And do you think, and how do you feel they were able to move from resilience to then a form of innovation? Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Matt, for asking and, and thanks for having me on the podcast. So yeah, continuing on, on the uh, trails of Tanya. Tanya already mentioned that in the 90s re recession, they did this business model innovation where they opened up a new business segment, which was basically bus shelters made of acrylic glass, which, which certainly uses some of the technology uh, used in, in, in boats, but it's, it's a completely different game. Uh, and uh, then, then in the financial crisis 2008-2009, they recalibrated their production lines. And finally, during the coronavirus pandemic, which is still ongoing as we record this podcast, mm -hmm. uh, they have started new digital sales channels. Uh, they have started to develop new technologies for boats. And, and this innovation is ongoing. But again, uh, there is innovation going on which relates to both of the business model as well as the technology. And, and when we started to examining this case with Tanya uh, in the early phases of coronavirus pandemic, we were, we were very interested that, okay, how does a family company that is really, really focused on maintaining the main line of business during the periods of calm? And these periods of calm have been sufficiently long. And, mm -hmm. and you know, then, then when the crisis hits, 
there is a, this um, trouble or challenge that organizational rigidity or the competence trap or success trap, as some call it, that occurs. And in this case, we didn't see this competency trap or success trap taking place. So even if they have exploited so long their competencies and capabilities, for some reason, they were able to innovate and change. And, and we, we thought deeply, why, why does this happen? And, and we, uh, we came up with several um, also theoretical explanations and other types of explanations why this might be. And I'm just going to give you a glimpse of it. Um, sure, thank you. It's a, a paper that's going to be published in uh, Journal of Family Business Strategy. And of course, there we elaborate it much more. But in that paper, uh, we have three, three basic um, ideas. So one is the way that the company changes. And it's, it could be called as temporal separation logic. Uh, when, you, when you look at that, how does a firm confront a paradox? And, and there's this type of paradox, which you could say, risk aversion versus risk taking. So on the other hand, you need to be risk averse if you want to uh, retain some stability, but at the same time, you have to take risks at some point. This company choose or, or you know, ended up taking the risk where it was necessary due to external contingencies. And, and you, know, you can call this temporal separation. So you act on a crisis when the crisis takes place. And, and why does a company do that when a crisis takes place? One, one of the explanations is preference reversal. It's mm -hmm. called preference reversal. It's the tendency to react when there are changes in the business environment that actually lead to the decline of, of company performance or lead to unsatisfactory performance otherwise. So then the preferences are changed. And actually, the way that you did business, you just have to change that if you want to keep on, for instance, um, accumulating revenue and, and so on. And, and in the case of family business, this type of preference reversal might be really crucial. If the, if the livelihood of the family and the continuity of family business is at stake, mm -hmm. then, then you know, you, your preferences are reversed. And you know, interestingly, and this is the third point, interestingly, we also saw some maybe deliberate or maybe partially uh, just uh, coincidental behavior where they accumulated a lot of slack resources during the stable periods. And by slack resources, I mean financial resources or maybe, you know, uh, capacity to act because, because yeah. they have been basically doing pretty well, you know, with, with type of low energy in terms of change. Mm -hmm. And, and when, the, when the, you know, the opportunity got to them, when the opportunity presented itself, they were able to innovate and they were willing to innovate. And, and, and with Tanya, we, early on, we thought that, okay, this willingness to innovate is really related to the social emotional wealth preservation, mm -hmm. which is related to family firms. So they, they want, uh, they have this extra willingness, you know, if you compare to non-family business firms, they have this extra willingness and motivation to really preserve the family business. That makes them maybe a little stagnant during the calm periods. But during crisis, that makes them really innovative. So it's, it's this type of very interesting logic that got me fascinated about this case. And I'm still fascinated. <laughs> no, that's really good. Similarly, I'm listening to the different points. What is absolutely interesting, as you say, is that those periods of stability did not trap them into rigidity and competence traps, which is what we would expect of, of a firm that has 
excelled doing things in a particular way. And I think your point about preference reversal is especially interesting because you know, underperformance can cause lots of different effects for managers. On the, on the one hand, it can cause a sense of panic where they then try to strive to cut costs or restore what they're doing. And you often see you know, these kind of highly reactive responses or cut costs, stabilize the business, do even more of what you're doing well already. But in this case, it's really interesting to see this shift in mindset where actually, no, we can't carry on doing what we're doing because A, I suppose it's part of the problem. And from there, being able to flip that almost like a switch almost, which is really interesting. But it shows something about the mindset, I think, of, of the family members running the business. So um, that's extremely interesting thought there. Yeah, yeah, they have been quite picky, I would say, also during the stable times, especially, but also during crisis, that they, they are not spending money on anything extra uh, as individuals. And then also like safety and the, the reputation of the family name is so important. They mm. are so important for them that they are, they are willing to, to both save money when it's possible and do good returns, but then when it's necessary, when they see it's necessary to shift the focus, then they are totally willing and they do anything to, to make the company survive and be good in success again. It's also interesting, you know, Pavel, your final point there about whether deliberately or not had, had done well to accumulate resources in the past. And we know family firms have for instance, a preference towards patient capital where they, they can and will accumulate capital. And there's a difference then between accumulating and being willing to deploy it and deploy it in a way that's towards innovation. So I really like how these three factors come together to sort of cause that switch, I think. Great. Well, thank you for those uh, insights as well. So maybe I can close now by just asking, what do you think are some of the key lessons or takeaways for family business leaders from your study into FinBoat? Pablo, maybe I can start with you. Okay, yeah. So, so I think we have a couple of lessons, lessons here. And also, when thinking about how they actually did the innovation each time, uh, one of the things is, is that crises, when they arrive, they are very unpredictable. We, we certainly know it now. Uh, so it's very good to do some contingency planning. And, and this type of patient capital that Matt you just mentioned, it's, it's one of those things. And I think some of the firms do that deliberately, uh, family firms, especially when, when they, you know, oftentimes they accumulate also real estate type of capital as part of their businesses and all those types of things. It's good to save for a rainy day, I would say. That's, that's, that's a you know, lesson that many of us have learned. And, and of course, you know, then to be able to deploy that capital uh, when the time comes. Uh, but how... Another point that I want to make is that, okay, how do you deploy that, um, those resources when the time comes? So we found in this case also that you also have to listen to the outside advice, uh, which yeah. is very important. When it, outside in, the, in a sense that it's, it's among the other people in the company, but also outside advice in terms of new employees coming in or, or you know, competitors or, or someone else, uh, or even university researchers, why not? So uh, listen to us outside advice, but at the same time, I would say stick to your identity. So this innovation through tradition, uh, innovation that really aligns with the identity of the family firm 
um, as an outsider to this firm, I, I kind of witnessed that the identity and, and tradition and the, and the way how the firm presents itself uh, among the stakeholders, I think this was also important part of the innovation. So yeah. they could nicely combine the outside and the, and the identity. I think that's really interesting because it speaks to what Tanya was discussing earlier on in the podcast about persevering with reputation and with quality, but then also, you know, looking at retro designs and smaller boats and the history of the business as, as a source of inspiration and innovation. So I think those are really points that align quite well. Tanya, do you have additional thoughts that you might like to add? Uh, well, I think that Barbara took really good points. They are the core ones that I would also emphasize. But what I have been also thinking is that somehow I still have the feeling because now the company is in a position where they didn't introduce any new boat models <clears throat> since 15 years or so. And even the latest one hasn't been sold. So I think that now they are in a situation where they should also maybe uh, introduce a new boat model. So, mm -hmm. so maybe also now that the times come better, they should somewhat uh, invest on innovation. Uh, but of course, the electronic engine and the international presence will be very good solutions for them to survive and do well also in the future. But, but I would still be a bit cautious about relying too much on the previous generation's early innovations that date yeah. back 40 years. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting because one of the things I've been wondering lately is, you know, one of the themes of this sort of podcast series that I've been doing is <clears throat> the difference between being resilient and being resurgent. And I think, Tanya, your, your last point there has got me to realize that there's also like a third step, which is, okay, you can be resilient, you can resurge, but you then need to freeze or set the recovery to, to what gives the next um, trajectory. And I think in this case, project innovation would be the way forward. So uh, thank you both in that respect for your really insightful contributions. I'm extremely grateful to you for giving me your time. And yeah, just to reemphasize, this is part of a paper that is now being published in Journal of Family Business Strategy. It's a fantastic paper and really interesting case. And I'm sure the listeners will have gained a lot from it because I should have. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Matt.